0: Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, this is for me a very high privilege to speak to these unbelievably strategic servants of yours, and I don't take it lightly and uh, tremble at the thought of having some little influence in the thousand or so Pools from which it will ripple out here. And so I ask for your help to be faithful to your word on which this society is built and to depend upon the Holy Spirit for his merciful enablement. I ask for alertness for this mid-afternoon hour for those who hear. And I ask that you protect us from the evil one who would distort what I say and ruin it and I pray that you would cover any error and cause it to be recognized and dispensed with and that you would confirm what is true and that our hearts would be inflamed with delight in you and our minds would be made clear concerning who you are and what you're up to in the church and in the missionary enterprise of the world. So draw near now and help us for this next hour. I pray for the glory of your name and the good of your bride and the expansion of your kingdom among all the unreached peoples of the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The greatest need of pastors and missionaries for the next generation is precisely the same need as every generation that has ever been or will ever be, and therefore the task that is the greatest challenge for each of you who are engaged in preparing them for it never ever changes. In fact, the great need is so central to all of life and so definitive of all ministry and so relevant to all culture and so ultimate compared to every other value that it should be the all-absorbing passion of every scholar and every teacher in this room, especially those who presume to help prepare pastors and missionaries for their work in this day. And the need that I have in mind is that pastors and teachers and missionaries need to know God and they need to treasure God more than they treasure anything in the world. More than they treasure speaking at an ETS plenary session, and more than they treasure publishing books and articles, and more than they treasure wives or husbands or children or health or life itself, more satisfying must this God be to us than anything else in the world. So the greatest need that every pastor and every missionary has who comes through your school or your classes is to know God better than they know anything and to enjoy God more than they enjoy anything else in the world. Therefore, the supreme challenge to you is this. How shall I then study and how shall I then teach, how shall I write, and how shall I live? How shall I give my seminar paper this afternoon in Orlando? How shall I talk of sacred things over supper tonight? How shall I be vigilant over the television in the privacy of my room How shall I rise tomorrow morning to pray about the magnitude of the importance of the truth at stake in some of these seminars? How shall I then study and teach and write and live so that the effect of all my life will be the production of pastors and and missionaries who know God better than they know anything and delight in Him more than they delight in anything. That's the challenge of your life. That's why you're on planet Earth. And I would like to help you accomplish it in the little bit that I have with you this afternoon. Now, I know that there are other demands upon us in the pastorate and on the mission field all the more on the mission field. If we're going to do our job well, I know that. In fact, there are hundreds of them. And they change from year to year and month to month and church to church and city to city and people to people and culture to culture, which is why I'm not going to talk about them. I'd like being relevant ten years from now. And I don't know much about them anyway. I'm not a very good how-to person. There are hundreds of other things to talk about. Hundreds of things a pastor has to know and missionaries have to know and do. But the main demand and the hardest demand to fulfill and the most crucial demand in all our life if we're going to do our jobs well is that we know God better than we know anything and that we delight in Him more than we delight in anything, including our wives and our husbands and our children and our lives and our books and our ministries. So there are a hundred things to talk about, which is why the refrain in Don Carson's talk was, I would like to say more, but... because anybody who undertakes to do what he did has, as he said at the beginning, chosen to do the impossible. And I'm not half as daring as he is. And so I'm going to do the simple thing and talk about one thing, which is the only thing I care about in the universe. And there are five reasons to do it this way. And let me tell you what they are. And when I'm done, I'll be done with these five reasons. Almost because I'm a pastor and I am going to exhort you with three concluding exhortations on the basis of what I say here. Reason number one for why saying that the greatest need for pastors and missionaries is to know God and to delight in God above all things is this. Our job is to so work and so live that we increase people's knowledge of God and delight in God. That's my job. That's every missionary's job. That's every pastor's job. My job is to do whatever I can do so that when I'm done, people know God and enjoy God more than before I did it. That's my job. And therefore, if I don't know God, and if I don't delight in God, I don't even have the first prerequisite for doing my job, which is to bring that about in more and more people and among more and more peoples on the face of the earth. That's reason number one. You can not know a hundred things and hinder that job. But if you don't know this thing, you destroy that job, which is why I have the priorities I have. Secondly, I stress this because if you get it right, if you know God and if you delight in God above all things, then all the other things in church life, all the other hundreds of things you have to do will be sustained by God-exalting motives and they will be refined by God-exalting truth and they will be empowered by the energy of a God-saturated spiritual life. And I think that's good. That all the secondary matters will be sustained and refined and empowered with a God-centered focus is a wonderful thing. God does not destroy secondary things when they are loved less than the main thing. He builds them, He holds them when they are loved less. Number three, the third reason that I stress the centrality of knowing God and enjoying Him above all things, is this. There is today in the church and in the academy and in mission agencies a tremendous, relentless, irresistible, almost pressure, to give ourselves to secondary things mainly. Because they're so strategic, it feels. They're so urgent, it feels. They're so practical and helpful and effective and successful, it feels. There is a strange tendency. It is really strange. If, if, if I got carried away, I, I would almost say demonic. But let's just call it Strange, there is a strange tendency today to say in response to what I've said so far, yes, 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 John, knowing and loving God is supremely important. How could anyone disagree? I never find anybody that disagrees with me. They just don't do what I want them to do. So there's a strange thing here. It's a strange thing. Yes, yes, John, how could anybody disagree? And then to say, as if it were a tribute to God, we take that for granted in our seminars, in our courses, in our syllabi, in our lectures, in our books, in our mission conferences, at our leadership gatherings, at our church growth seminars, at our church planting equipping seminars. Yes, yes, that is foundational. The problem is this. You can't take it for granted today. You can't take it for granted that students and pastors and teachers and missionaries know God or love God or delight in Him more than they delight in pornography. Or delight in Him more than they delight in their car, or their boat, or their second house, or their fine ministry. You can't take that for granted. The foundation is not necessarily there. The evidence of this is the emergence of spiritual formation. It would not have occurred to anybody to create a course In spiritual formation, if students were walking out of biblical classes aflame with a passion for the glory of God standing forth from the exegesis of the Greek text, it wouldn't have entered anybody's mind. It wouldn't have occurred to anybody to add courses in spiritual formation if students were coming out of systematic theology and church history with their minds amazed at the majesty of God and their hearts burning like the men on the road to Emmaus. Machen, in 1905, was in Germany and was almost swept away by what happened to him in a course taught by Wilhelm Hermann, systematic theologian at Marburg. Machen wrote home to his mother like this. Now, this is a man who, in Machen's words, embodied the best of modernism against which he would devote his life. Later on, against which... Machen, would war with all his might. And he wrote, My chief feeling with reference to him is already one of deepest reverence. I have been thrown all into confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. He believes that Jesus is the one thing in all the world that inspires absolute confidence and an absolute joyful subjection. And through Jesus, we come into communion with the living God and are made free from the world. His trust in Christ is practically, if anything more than theoretically, unbounded. End quote. It simply would have been unintelligible had you said to J. Gresham Machen that what the seminary needs is a spiritual formation course. If what you want is communion with God, unbounded trust, and absolute joyful submission to the living God. He would have simply said, take a course in systematic theology from Wilhelm Hermann. That's what he would have said. And may it be said in your seminaries. May the students abandon those courses for your exegesis courses and your theology courses where there is more than the mystical technique from an alien tradition. You don't need them if the work is being done right. I regard the spiritual formation movement, and, and much else as a sign of failure, as much as a sign of hope. So, when the response comes to me, yes, yes, John, knowing God better than we know anything and delighting in God more than we delight in anything is, is foundational. We take it for granted. It's underneath the seminary courses, the church growth seminars, The church planting workshops, the cross-cultural missionary training strategy sessions. Yes, yes, John, it is foundational. We assume that. We take that for granted. We may, in response, calmly say, God doesn't like being taken for granted. I've thought in the recent years about this word foundation and assumption. God is the foundation of this course. Sounds like a tribute. It's not a tribute. God does not like being taken for granted. He does not like being ignored. So as I've tried to think through this biblical metaphor, I have come to see it as utterly, radically inadequate to describe God's relationship to anything. Foundations are fairly unsightly, silent, dirty, crumbling, out-of-the-way structures upholding the rooms where we do what we like to do. We eat in the kitchen. We have sex in the bedroom. We watch TV in the den, and we talk to friends in the living room, and we don't give God a thought, not in the syllabus, and not in the class, but he's holding it all up. That's not a tribute. That's an assault. The metaphor is biblical, and it is utterly inadequate because God aims to be the food we eat. God aims to be the entertainment of the eyes of our heart. God aims to be the lover around which our arms are enfolded and God aims to be the friend in our living room with whom we hold the deepest intercourse. He does not like being taken for granted in any course, in any syllabus, in any seminar, in any workshop while we immerse ourselves in methodology. God means to be public, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, whatever course, whatever workshop, whatever seminar, whatever book, whatever article, do all to the glory of God. Do not neglect the explicit honoring of God in everything you do, lest you be faulted by him, which leads now to my fourth reason for stressing this. I'm saying that pastors and missionaries need to know God and enjoy God more than they know anything, better than they know anything, and enjoy Him above all things. There's a link between that third point and this fourth point. And I I picture it like this. Next Thursday, when you smile and moan with joy at the thanksgiving table. The chair on which you sit will not be honored. The turkey in your mouth will be. And should you multiply your pleasures in the marriage bed that night, the mattress on which you lie will not be honored. The person in your arms will be. Foundations are not enough if, and this is my fourth point, your aim is with the whole terrain of Scripture to glorify God. The whole Bible has this one overarching point. Everything is to be done to display publicly the glory of the perfections of our God. God is on a massive public relations effort in creation and redemption. He means to be known publicly Seen, glorified, honored, treasured, delighted in, publicly, not secretly, not underneath, not holding everything up while we delight in what we like to do and give him no explicit honor. He's not into that. That is not why creation happened the heavens are telling the glory of God. Day unto day is pouring forth speech while we shut our mouths about God in seminar after seminar after seminar. And do not give Him His due, but talk about secondary good things. The purpose of God in all of Scripture is to be known publicly. I've been reading through the Bible this year and I have now arrived in my little discipleship journal reading plan at Ezekiel. And I just read the two chapters on Gog and Magog on, uh, what is today? I think I read it on Wednesday. And I just want to take them as typical of the point of the Bible. I'm trying to model here now, unintentionally, what I heard Don call for in my unifying effort to look at Scripture. This needs to be now inserted into the overarching function of the whole Bible, these two chapters, and here's what I see. God says to this mysterious, mysterious person named Gog, who lives in Magog, I will bring you against my land. So he's going to be an instrument of judgment. I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That they may know him and that his holiness might be vindicated before eyes. Then Gog finishes his work, and God turns against Gog in great wrath. Chapter thirty-eight, twenty-one. I will summon every terror against Gog, says the Lord. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make Myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. That phrase occurs 60 times in the book of Ezekiel. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And then verse 21 in chapter 39. And I will set my glory among the nations not hidden underneath the nations on which they are held up to do everything else that's good in the world. I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward." Now, I cite Ezekiel as typical of the whole of the Bible. The whole Bible is meant to show that God's main purpose in the world is to to publicly display His greatness and His glory for the enjoyment, the infinite and ever-increasing enjoyment of His people. Now, I'm assuming something here. So let me make my assumption explicit and then give some warrant for it. I'm assuming at this point that knowing God better than we know anything and enjoying God more than we enjoy anything is the biblical pathway to displaying the glory of God in the world. Now, I confess openly with great gratitude and great joy that my main dead teacher outside the Bible is Jonathan Edwards, from whom I have been led into the Himalayas of God's Word again and again with great gratitude and trembling. And I want to quote him on this point. Here's what he said. God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding as he that testifies also of his approbation of it and his delight in it. In other words, if the whole point of the Bible is that all things exist your courses, your seminars, your syllabi, your articles, your work, your life, your family, your teaching, for the public display of the glories of God, and if Edwards is right, then you cannot join God in His ultimate purpose unless you know God well with your mind and delight in Him magnificently with your heart. Those are the means by which God becomes glorified in your courses and in your syllabi and in your reading list and in your teaching and in your writing. Let me illustrate the need for this, the tremendous need for this, as I feel it as a pastor under the indictment of Albert Einstein. I read a few years ago, it was quoted in First Things, this uh word from Charles Meisner, a scientific specialist in general revel- relativity theory, about Albert Einstein's view of preaching. Now, Albert Einstein died in 1955 when I was nine years old. And if he were alive today, this indictment would be jacked up tenfold, I believe. Here's what... Meisner said, I do believe the design of the universe is essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a very... Religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. They were just not talking about the real. Now, that was from a man who lived and flourished in the 40s and 50s. What would he say today when the Hubble telescope is sending back to us infrared images from among the 50 billion galaxies, I have no idea how they count them. Images from per- perhaps, the article said, 12 billion light years away. That's 12 billion times six trillion miles. God spoke that into being. It is a plaything for the Almighty. And over against that, what would he hear in the pulpit? Psychological soothing, practical how-tos, relational therapy, and the bending of every effort, to dumb it down and be seeker-sensitive. When probably what all those seekers need more than anything is to be blown away by the holiness of Almighty God. And they would come back. They would come back. even though God said to these preachers, to whom will you compare me? I bring out all their hosts, all these stars, 100 million times 50 billion. I bring them all out by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of my might. And because I am strong in power, not one of them is missing. Einstein felt intuitively that if the God of the Bible exists and if pastors and missionaries know him better than they know anything and count him their greatest treasure, something's wrong. And what's wrong is pastors and missionaries don't know him and don't treasure him the way they should. Instead, we have been duped and deceived into believing that we just have to read the next Barna book and the next Drucker book and the next description of boomers, busters, exers, and every flitting little thing that comes across the screen of this precious two-second life of ours when our people starve for the majesty of God. And I hope with all my heart I can break some of that deception that's on this room in part, though I know there are many who believe what I believe. They just don't believe, these missionaries, that it is more important to grasp the vision of Ezekiel and the mysteries of the ways of God in Romans 9 to 11 than to read that next glossy, urgent paperback that they heard touted at the last seminar as a must-read. They have no backbone. They have no theological backbone to swim against this incredible stream in which we are being swept away to irrelevance. That's argument number four. This is number five and the last one. I Focus on this one central point that pastors and missionaries need above all things to know God better than they know anything and delight in Him more than they delight in anything because this is the key that unlocks the kind of sacrificial love that will free the church to do every good deed and finish the great commission in love. The Great Commission is not going to be finished without martyrs. Barna produces no martyrs. Ezekiel does. The churches will not make God look like He is worth leaving the suburbs for if our lives look exactly like everybody else's and we take exactly the minimal risks with our things that everybody else takes. And what then is it, I ask, that will free pastors and free missionaries and free the people to whom they minister from the bondage to things and ease and comfort and security that produces lives that look exactly like everybody else's life and therefore does not display the supreme value of God over all those things for which we live. Why is God getting no glory? And the answer is because He is not cherished above our houses and he is not cherished above our health, and he is not cherished above our children, and he is not cherished above our retirement accounts, and our cars, and our computers, and our books. The key here is to be so ravished, to be so satisfied with God, that we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. And the best unit of the Bible to make this plain is Hebrews 10-13. through 13. So I survey it for you now in the next five minutes. First, the case of the early Christians. Hebrews 10.34 You had compassion on the prisoners. You had compassion. You loved them. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they suffered the loss of everything. This is missions, this is ministry, this is city, this is urban, this is risk, this is countercultural, this is lay it down, make Christ magnificent lifestyle. And where did it come from? It came from this since you knew that you had a better possession and abiding one. They treasured what God would be for them in the age to come 10,000 times more than keeping their houses from being plundered. Secondly, Moses in chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of god than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered abuse suffered for the christ greater wealth than all the treasures of egypt now where did that love come from where did the willingness to lay down every benefit and every security of Egypt come from and embrace suffering as a leader of the cantankerous people of God to take them all the way to the promised land. I'll finish the verse. For he looked to the reward. Third illustration. Jesus Christ, Hebrews twelve two who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did the King of kings embrace suffering? Where did that greatest of all acts of love come from? It came from the liberating power of being ravished by the joy set before him. Fourth illustration, you, the reader of the book and me. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, hear this from the Lord to your own heart. Let us go forth to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. Where are you going to get the strength to do that? Where does love come from? Where does missionary martyr love come from? Where does pastoral inner city love come from? Where does lay down your life kind of love come from? I'll finish verse 14. For... Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. Is it plain or what? How could it be plainer in the book of Hebrews what the key to missionary sacrificial love is? It isn't technique. It is being satisfied with a better possession, God, than all our goods. It is being satisfied with the reward of His presence over all the pleasures of Egypt. It is being satisfied with the joy set before us so that we can despise the shame and not give it one bit of relevance in our lives. And it is being satisfied in the city which is to come Until we so live, so teach, so write that our students fall in love with all that God promises to be for them in Jesus more than they love everything in the world, we won't produce missionaries who finish the Great Commission or pastors who do anything but stroke themselves with the praises of men in nice, comfortable churches. Well, those are my five reasons for saying that the greatest need of the pastorate and the greatest need of missionaries in every generation, including this one and the next one, is to know God better than we know anything and to delight in God more than we delight in anything. Now, here's what I finish with. My three exhortations that I promised you. Someone might say to me, why Why didn't you talk about what you were assigned to talk about? And my answer is, I have, and if you didn't hear it, you didn't get it. But I might have, I might have done more. I might have done more. But I have this conviction that when I have an hour, when I have one hour with a thousand unbelievably important human beings, I just always go back to the same message. If I had three days with you, I'd talk about Greek and Hebrew and their indispensability. See, I got I got a little bit in here, but I don't have time. Just like Don didn't have time to say a tenth of what he wanted to say, so I'm going to exhort you like a pastor would and should. The problem you're facing um, in your Schools is not a problem of technique. It's not a problem of curriculum mainly. It's not a problem of pragmatic administrators and lack of funds and busy students. It's a problem of your own heart. And so here's my first exhortation. In all your studies, seek to know God the creator of the universe, the ruler of all things, the savior of the world, the sustainer of all being and the guide of all history. Seek to know him as a person with a character. Labor, labor not to treat him as an idea. Fix your gaze on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Resist the vague cloudy image and strive for the clear, sharp spiritual portrait with lines and contours that make him this and not that. Ask with every chapter of Scripture you read and every article and every book you read, ask what can I know of God here? What can I learn of God's ways here? How can I know my God's personality more here. Where is God in this? Resist the addiction to methodological narcissism that never finds the treasure because it never looks up from the map. Secondly, treat your studies like Warfield and Owen. Saturate them with prayer. This prayer, Psalm 90, over every study, over every book, over every article, over every lecture, over every seminar this afternoon, pray this prayer. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in Thee. All my days. Plead with God. You're sitting there now saying, well, that's your personality. It's not my personality. This is not an issue of personality. This is an issue of the Holy Spirit, answer to prayer, and the almighty work of God transforming human lives into what they ought to be. Plead with God that He not leave you unmoved by His glories revealed in the Scriptures. Plead for that. Plead when you are drawn away from the beauties of the Bible to some silly financial scheme. Plead Psalm 119.36. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to gain. Why would a man pray such a thing unless the human heart were constantly inclined the other way? Which all of our hearts are especially scholars who preoccupy themselves with this holy business every day. We must constantly pray, incline my heart, O God, to the glory in this text, to the wonders. Pray Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in Thy law. When the book goes blank, goes blank in your hands and you just are going through the motions in your classes Pray, open my eyes. Don't abandon me to the mechanics of this business of scholarship. Paul said in Second Corinthians one twenty four, I am a worker with you for your joy. The apostolic mission is, I am a worker with you for your joy. That's why I'm here this afternoon. And if it didn't take work, I wouldn't be here. And I wouldn't write what I've written or preach the way I preach. It is a fight from start to finish to be happy in God. Be like Warfield. When he was challenged, ten minutes, Warfield, on your knees will give you a truer deeper, more operative knowledge of God than ten hours over your books? To which he responded, What? Than ten hours over your books on your knees? Do it. Or be like Owen, who knew the secret of communion with God in every act of study, and every theological controversy. Here's what he said. When the heart is cast indeed into the mold of the doctrine that the mind embraces, when the evidence and necessity of the truth abides in us, when not the sense of the words only is in our heads, but the sense of the thing abides in our hearts, when we have communion with God in the doctrine we contend for, I love that phrase. We have communion with God in the doctrine we contend for. Then we shall be garrisoned by the grace of God against the assaults of men. And I would simply add, then our students will be set aflame by the authenticity of our knowledge and our delight in God. And lastly, my third and final exhortation. Take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Do not begrudge the afflictions of being faithful to your calling. Luther noticed in Psalm 119 that there were three rules for understanding Scripture and knowing God. Oratio, meditatio. How many know the third one? tentatio, maybe I don't know how to pronounce it, trial, anfechtungen, tribulation. The greatest hermeneutical key in life is pain. And he got it from Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Or verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes." Oh, brothers and sisters, do not begrudge the day of your affliction. It is for your work in knowing the Bible and what it means. So he said these afflictions, this is Luther now, these afflictions teach you not only to know and understand, but to experience, how right and how true and how sweet and how lovely are the mighty, comforting words of God. It is wisdom supreme. And he proved the value of it over and over again. Listen to this great, inimitable Luther. As soon as God's Word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you with, great affliction and make a doctor of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love god's word for i myself owe my papists many thanks for so beating and pressing and frightening me through the devil's raging, that they have turned me into a fairly good theologian. (laughs) Driving me to a goal I should never have reached. And have we not, brothers and sisters, have we not tasted the preciousness of God And delighted more in his ways in justification because of this great man, Luther. And therefore, so it will be with you if you will embrace your suffering and meditate long and pray relentlessly that God will enable you to know God more than you know anything and to enjoy God more than you enjoy anything so that everybody coming through your classes and reading your books and listening to your lectures will be aflame with the knowledge of God and delight in God so that they can finish the great commission which is to bring all the nations to know him and to praise Him with all their might. Would you let me pray with you one more time? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I love these brothers and sisters. I don't know where I would be without the Fuller Seminary of 1968 to 1971. It is without measure the gratitude that I have for what happened to me in those years I love what I learned at Wheaton College in Bible and philosophy I don't believe the church can do it without the academy I love the calling that's on this group and therefore I want for them power and knowledge and joy and suffering until they burn for your glory, and every student that comes near them is set aflame. Be glorified in this group, Father, and finish the great work, hasten the day, come Lord Jesus. Amen.